I'm Liz Corey. And I'm Katie Kane. And this is True, True Crime, Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello. Welcome back to another episode. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful spring-summer day. You know, I, I walked out of my apartment this morning and I got that disgusting, sick feeling that I get when it starts to get warm. And I hated every second of it. But I know that's a very... uh not popular opinion. So I'm happy for you guys that summer's here. Just know for the next five months, I'm going to be miserable. Oh my God. We're having, so when we're recording this, you guys, we're having a two day heat wave. Yeah. We're recording this in early mid April mm. and we have had temperatures up to 85 degrees. Yep. But rest assured, Liz, the week after we record this, it's going to be 50s and raining again. So it'll be all you. That's my comfort zone. Yes. But this has been such a nice little tease. I love. Nice for you. Heat. I love summer. Nope. <laughs> I'm miserable. I'm miserable. And actually, guys, I did start. This is fun fact for Katie. You recommended vitamin E for me which is something that I learned because I Googled it. I was like, oh, let me check this out. Is something women take for menopause in their hot flashes. You said that helps with hot flashes and heat. And so I started taking it. Um, I have not noticed a difference, but it might just be that my blood is so hot all the time <laughs> that I'm just constantly miserable. So at least you were trying to help me. You know? I hope. Keep taking it though, gonna... because if it's a supplement or an herbal, yeah. they take a long time to kick in, like sometimes six to 10 weeks. That. I did not know that. We yeah. learn something on this podcast every day. You're welcome, audience. On an unrelated note, Katie, you brought up a very good point. This episode comes out on America's favorite national holiday, <laughs> 420. Lays it, which unironically <laughs> or ironically is my parents' anniversary. This year, it'll be their 27th? anniversary wow i don't know what the gift is it's definitely not like diamonds or you know tinfoil i don't know what it would be for 27 but um since they since i was like in middle school and i learned what 420 meant i constantly joke with them about getting married on 420 and how blazed that is and how we should constantly blaze up together on 420 <laughs> which would be a nightmare anywho speaking of weed Katie? Yeah, so we figured this episode comes out on 420. Blaze it. Um, <laughs> basically a holiday for you guys who partake in marijuana consumption. Woo. We didn't plan it this way, but you guys could tell by the title of our episode, we have an exoneration for you. Very interesting. While the crime that Ulysses Charles, our star of the episode, the crime that he was wrongfully imprisoned for was not drug-related. There are some drug charges that come into play. And also 420, there are so many people of color still behind bars, still being arrested, charged, convicted to this day for nonviolent drug crimes, marijuana possession, marijuana possession with intent to sell, right. all of that. And we have people who are behind bars serving sentences for those charges. Still. In states where marijuana has been legalized, yeah. black men especially are wrongfully convicted at way higher rates than white people, according to the ACLU in a study based on data from 2001 to 2010. Black men were 273% more likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people, despite using it at very similar rates. Sorry, say that number again? 273%. 
That's like almost triple. Yep. Holy shit. And marijuana use is relatively the same. Right. It's very, very similar if you break it down. Let's be honest here. Pretty much everyone uses marijuana in some form. Oh, absolutely. These days, are you kidding me? So that's ridiculous that people are in jail for that. Right. And you're thinking, oh, that that study was 2001 and 2010. It's 2023 now. Everybody is way more Mm -hmm. lenient about marijuana. Now that weed is being legalized in various states, Black people are 264% more likely to be arrested for possession. Oh my God. It's also a major issue in states that are or have legalized marijuana because the people still serving time for those convictions are still behind bars. Right. Where if you were to go visit those inmates, you would pass how many dispensaries on your way? Oh my God. Fucking millions. Oh my God. Maine? We record this podcast half the time up in Maine where Liz lives. How many dispensaries do I pass en route to you alone? There's literally on the main road that when you get off the highway to get to me, there's four on one street. Right. So white people are able to be entrepreneurs and business owners. Bud tenders. Bud tenders have marijuana as home decor, a little houseplant situation growing on, planting it in their backyard. And people are being arrested for smoking a J while walking down the street because they're black. So happy 420. God bless. Blaze it. If you are partaking in a little Mary Jane today or any day, keep those numbers in mind because we are a true crime podcast. We can relate almost anything back to true crime. Sure. So just think about how privileged you are if you are walking into a dispensary to buy some high quality marijuana with a crazy strain name. Oh, my God. They're so weird. They're so bizarre. Right. And it's like people are being paid to dream up these crazy Bob Marley, purple, smoke, blaze it, smoke it. Yeah. Grind it up and bake it in a cake. and Mm. Edibles. Big, big, big market for edibles. Right. And we have people behind bars for nonviolent drug crimes and marijuana possession. It's okay. You can say people of color, not people. Thank you. Because damn right. I guarantee that there is so little white people behind bars for marijuana possession that it's not even like a statistic. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. And like you said, Katie, I live in Maine. People walk around. I'm not a fan of smoking the the Mary Jane, the Blue Kush, the <laughs> Doobie Brothers. I don't like smoking it because smoking is bad. Don't put things in your lungs. There are other ways you can intake marijuana. But There truly is. That's just one road to get to me. Katie, if you turned the other way before turning onto my street, you would go down another, a very long main road in Portland that has literally over 20 just in like a two mile stretch. And they all have silly names like the grow room, uh, the happy cloud. There's one sweet dirt is a great one. It's a chain, I guess. I don't know. Uh, there's just a whole bunch. 207 elevation. Like, there's so many. And here's another fun fact about marijuana that I learned last week in honor of the 420 Blaze It. In Maine, marijuana is very legal. In New Hampshire, it's not still. Yeah. I work in Maine, and I would say a very large portion of our pregnant mothers smoke weed still. Now, that's not what I'm, I'm not going to get into the, you know, the controversy of smoking weed while you're pregnant. I'll tell you right now, you shouldn't. 
because you shouldn't smoke anything while you're pregnant, but that's not the what I'm trying to get at. Here, smoking weed when you're pregnant, it's just simply like marked on their chart. Like, oh, they use THC, whatever. In New Hampshire, I was talking with my friend Emma uh, last week who works in Dover at a hospital on the labor and delivery unit. And she said that if they they test all their, you know, their moms for THC. And if they show up positive, they have to report it to DHS, like the cert, the child protective services for marijuana. Now, while this isn't necessarily like a racial disparity thing, it's very interesting because here they sm- like my moms will smoke marijuana. And again, not talking about that controversy, just the fact that they it's very obvious most of them do. And, but in New Hampshire, you could get your children taken away because you smoke weed. That's ridiculous. The criminalization of drugs. Crazy. Beyond. And this, in New Hampshire, live free or die. It's crazy because that's like the big thing. And everybody who loves New Hampshire is like, yeah, live free or die. I got my guns. Oh, New Hampshire. Love New Hampshire, but God. Get it together. Loves guns. New Hampshire loves guns. And they love stand your ground laws. <laughs> yeah. They love self-defense. They say if anyone even looks at you, you are allowed to shoot them in the face. <laughs> but God forbid that person had a joint in their hand, arrest them. Literally. Yeah. Literally. That's very interesting on this 420. Yeah. But yeah, you guys, we have a really good case for you today. <laughs> that has nothing to do with marijuana. <laughs> really. No, no. <laughs> but it is, in the essence of our intro going into the episode, it is a very good episode for conversation. 100%. Um, we're definitely going to be having some good discussions on this episode. For sure. We're going to keep that going. So stick around. You guys know we love talking. For, well, one, we love talking. It's a podcast. It's an audio-based production. But we also love ranting about things we're passionate about. And that includes things like this case, which involves like exonerations. There's a reason why this man was exonerated. Yes, absolutely. And we'll go through all those reasons because they will blow your mind how racist this all is. If you guys listened to our last year's first anniversary special, we did a special little superlatives where we talked about, we, you know, we gave like rankings and said, okay, who was the worst perpetrator, blah, 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 and who was the best police department? sarcastically this police department these polices they would win that award for this year by a landslide the racism in this story is insurmountable the corruption it's just it's so fucked so bad it's so bad so definitely stick around. It's going to be a really interesting episode, a lot of interesting information. And I got a lot of my stuff from court documents, which is always my favorite. So definitely, guys, stick around. And without further ado, today we will be covering the, the exoneration, exoneration of Ulysses Charles. Okay, Katie, before we start this crazy story, I'd love to hear your sources. Sure. I used law.umich.edu, which is a University of Michigan State page. The Innocence Project, of course. Sure. We love them. We've done a round of our swear jar to raise money for them. They are phenomenal. 
forjustice.org, prisonlegalnews.org, and universalhub.com, which is a U.S. district court document. Nice. We had a lot of the same information. Oh, hell yeah. I love it. I, too, use the University of Michigan information. It's from the National Registry of Exonerations. I also used Universal Hub, Prison Legal News. I used La Justia, one of my faves. And I also used a website called Convicting the Innocent, which is was very helpful. And they also had um, documents, like court documents. I got a document from there that was from Duke um, based on this case. So it's very interesting. And I'm very excited to kind of just go over it and touch on all these points with you guys. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Katie, I'd be damned if you didn't start us off today. It would be my greatest honor. Thank you. On December 8th, 1980, three women living in their Boston, Massachusetts apartment were raped and robbed after a man broke in and attacked them. The apartment complex was located in Brighton, Massachusetts, near the General Dynamics shipyard. The man wielded a screwdriver as a weapon and threatened one of the women with it to force his way into the apartment. He was screaming, where is the money? Where is the jewelry? Once he entered the apartment, one of the other women saw him and screamed, and he forced her and the woman he threatened with the screwdriver to sit on the couch and not move. That's so scary. He threw a coat over their heads, but the women could hear him ransacking the place, just throwing open drawers, throwing things on the floor, crashing, banging, ransacking the whole place. Yeah. He entered a bedroom where the third woman was sleeping, and he woke her up, bound her, and then screamed at the other two women on the couch for not telling him she was there. Mm-hmm. He then raped all three women after taking their jewelry off of their person. After he raped the women, he stayed in the apartment for about two hours. How terrifying. That is psychological torture. Oh, 100%. He even played a guitar. Just strumming. Hanging out. That's ridiculous. As these women are bound, shaking, probably crying, very distraught. Probably in pain from being raped. Yes. Honestly. I can't even imagine. As he was leaving, he pulled the phone out of the wall. The women ran to a neighbor's apartment to call police, and there they were taken to Beth Israel Hospital. The women were able to inform police that met them there that the perpetrator was a black man who was five foot ten. They also told police that the man had a scraggly beard and a mustache. One of the women was interviewed by police at the hospital after her attack, and she told them her attacker had a regular old American accent. Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. Please do. The women had rape kits done. That involves a vaginal swab. Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind as well. Yes. So like you said, Katie, they had the vaginal swabs, and they did go into detail about, they didn't specify what happened to eat like what woman but they did say that one woman was raped orally and then the other two were raped vaginally one of which was also raped anally so these women were tortured wow and i mean just brutal brutal stuff and this guy has the audacity to play the guitar strum a few chords in the you know while they're sitting there pain scared worried for their lives and this guy's just strumming having a good time psychopath and you know katie i think to really hammer it home you did specify that they said that the man had an american accent this guy he did he was saying where's the money where's the jewelry he yelled at 
the first two women for not telling him about the third woman in the bedroom. He spoke to them enough that they could say, okay, he had an American accent. They also described him as having a medium complexion. So keep that in mind as well. Like a light-skinned uh, African-American man, maybe a, a man of mixed heritage, whatever. Their descriptions aligned pretty nicely. And so just in your brains, guys, just, you know, remember, it's an exoneration story. So you know what we're getting at. But keep those points in mind because it's really important. The day after their attack, police interviewed the women again and showed them over 200 mugshot photos of potential suspects and men vaguely fitting the description of the victims. They're pulling mugshots. So right. these are people who had prior arrests. Right. 30-year-old Ulysses Rodriguez Charles' photo was shown twice hmm. in the mix of other photos. Isn't that interesting? Which I'm going to pause and say right now that is a tactic that police use because it tricks your brain into thinking that someone looks familiar. And it kind of allows your brain to lean towards identifying that person. Right. Because, of course, they look familiar to you. Because you were just shown their photo multiple times in the lineup. Right. You saw them 16 pictures ago or whatever. Exactly. And in a lineup of 200 photos, you're not going to say, oh, you showed me this picture twice. Right. You're going to say, oh, wait, this is him. He looks familiar. Yeah. Why does he look familiar? That's crazy. It must be him. So that's a tactic police use. Ulysses also worked as a welder building Navy ships. And he worked near the apartment building where the women were attacked. Isn't that interesting? All three women identified Ulysses as the perpetrator. What the women could not tell from mugshot photos was that Ulysses had dreadlocks, gold front teeth, and given that he was from Trinidad, he had a Caribbean accent. Very thick Caribbean accent. Therefore, no longer fitting the description the women gave. But they did not know that because they were not informed of that information. Right. And if their attacker had dreadlocks, gold teeth, and a thick Caribbean accent, they would have informed police. Absolutely. Because that's those are big details. And they did not hear a thick Caribbean accent screaming at them, telling them to throw a coat over their heads, yelling at them. They heard a regular old American accent. And of course, like you said, this isn't on these women because they weren't told this. They chose pictures of Ulysses Charles where he didn't have dreadlocks. And you could he's not smiling. You couldn't see his two front teeth that were gold. Right. You don't smile in a monk shot. Like, Unless you're Justin Bieber. But <laughs> it's like they set the police set the women up and Charles up for failure. Thousand percent. And it's an abomination. And also already racist for seeing that already mm -hmm. so let's talk a little bit about the not the history but some of the history of ulysses charles in the recent years before this uh triple rape attack so ulysses charles like you said katie worked at the shipyard that was right next to the apartment where these girls lived in brighton massachusetts he lived in Boston, and we already described him. He had two gold front teeth. He had a very strong Caribbean accent. Of course, he had a very brief criminal history. So that's A, how they got his mugshot, and B, already kind of sets them in motion. And once police pick someone, they tend to go hard on them until they are absolutely proven that it's not them. So, in 1975, police arrested Charles for the 
charge of, quote, disorderly person. He was found guilty of this charge in 1976, and the judge had suspended this prison sentence to actually being three years probation. And the judge said he did this because he didn't really believe the police testimony. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? So, following the trial, Charles seemed to be routinely stopped by a certain police officer, and we'll say his name loud and proud, John Mulligan of the Boston Police Department. He targeted Ulysses Charles like no joke, and I'm about to tell you all about it. It's going to make your blood boil. And it was definitely done in retaliation for Ulysses getting off on that charge. 100%. And the judge saying... I don't believe what this officer Mulligan is saying. Ulysses, go on probation. You're fine. Absolutely. So there's an instance where Mulligan threatened Charles by saying, and I'm quoting this here, let me see anything shining coming out of your pockets and I'll blow your fucking head off. And so naturally, Charles was a little scared for his life and he constantly was afraid. In 1978, so this is like two years-ish after he was sentenced to the three years probation, Mulligan had pointed a gun at a man named Andrew Mead, who knew Charles, and demanded that he bring Mulligan to Charles' house. Once he was there, Mulligan was met at the door by Charles' girlfriend, Robin Howell. He then forced his way inside, learned that Charles was at work, got really mad, and then proceeded to search the house, arrest Robin, and take jewelry and an uncashed paycheck and claim that it was stolen property, they had received stolen property, and then he charged Robin and Charles with receiving stolen property. Which, if we want to dissect that, he entered the, he used force to yep. enter the home yep. and entered the home without a warrant, yep. arrested Robin yep. without a warrant, searched the home without a warrant, Correct. and then took these things, which in a court of law, if we use a little bit of critical thinking, that's breaking and entering, assault and battery for putting his hands on Robin without a warrant. And he threatened that guy with a gun. Criminal threatening and theft. Mm-hmm. And we'll tell you why theft. Because not even a week later... Charles was near his house when Mulligan showed up again. He had his gun pointed at him and he searched him. And then he took his watch and he threatened him again. I'm going to quote what was said. It's I don't think it's for verbatim, but I think it's well like when Charles like recounted it. This is what he said was said to him. And it's not my words. I'm just saying that. Quote, you fucking West Indian, come here and make more money than me. You better go back to where you came from or I'll give you a case and bury you in Walpole for the rest of your life. Threatening again? Yep. Stole. Racial profiling? Yep. Theft? Stole his watch? Just cause? Yeah. Charles went to court and he went to the police station with the receipts for the jewelry, the watch, and like the check. He proved that it was his check. He took that all to the police station and... It took him three tries because Mulligan was a little pussy-ass bitch. There was one instant where Mulligan literally hid and said to his coworkers, don't tell him I'm here, don't tell him I'm here, because he did not want to give up the stuff that he stole from Ulysses Charles. Right, and because that was his case, he had to be the one to complete it, yep. and he had to be the one to give Ulysses' belongings back to him, and he was refusing. Yep. So, like, the last time that 
Charles went to go and try and prove that that was his property, Mulligan directly threatened him by saying, don't come down here again asking for anything. Do you hear me? Mm, interesting. On December 5th, 1980, which was three days before the rape, it was proven that William Keogh, who was a police officer for the Boston Police Office, I'm sorry, I have no idea if I'm saying his name right, um, he's kind of a jerk, so I guess it doesn't really matter, but his last name is spelled K-E-O-U-G-H. Kal? Kalf? I have no idea. Doesn't matter. Police officer William, three days before the rape of these three women, had in his possession a picture of Charles as he had visited the shipyard before, you know, the rapes happened and was looking to find him. So he already had, like, for whatever reason, probably the whole, like, John Mulligan probably knew Officer William, and they were buddies, and he was probably trying to find something on Ulysses. Of course. At his place of work. So he had a picture. Fellow boys in blue. Oh, They got to have each other's back. Of course. There was a probable cause hearing because the three women identified Charles through those pictures. And during this trial, the judge asked one of the women to try and pick out Ulysses in the crowd. What the woman didn't know is that the judge had just dismissed him from the courtroom, and so he wasn't even in there. So when the woman said, I don't see him in here, automatically that looks like, you know, like, oh, see, see, she said he was, oh, but really it was just, that was like a tactic they used, Mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. On June 1st, 1981, about six months after the rapes occurred, Ulysses Charles was arrested as the main suspect for the rape of the three women in Brighton. So on September 2nd of 1981, just a few short months after his arrest, Charles failed to show up to his arraignment and then an arrest warrant was issued. In 1983, Charles was arrested again for failing to appear in court, A, and B, for the rapes of the three women. In November of 1983, police officer William Kiao Kauf, sorry guys, I don't know how to say his name and I just don't care, um, and Charles Campo, who was the assistant district attorney, a.k.a. the prosecution, called in the three victims, those three women, to the Boston Police Department and had them look at a, a physical lineup of the potential man who raped them. So we're talking like the men were in person behind the glass and the women were, cho- were like, oh, it was him. In the lineup, this is important, Charles stood as number two. Okay? All three women separately viewed the lineup. And all three women said that they could not definitively make an identification. Afterwards, Charles was waiting in the detainment room when his defense counsel, a man named James Gildon, told him that Charles Campo, the DA, wanted pictures of all the people who participated in the lineup in order to, quote, show that the procedure was fair. Gildon also told Ulysses that he did not have to use the same number that he used in the lineup. So instead of using number two, Ulysses just randomly was given the number four card and then they were reassembled into the lineup and his their pictures were taken. Several weeks later, Campo, that district attorney, he let it slip to the defense team that was representing Charles that one of the women had, he had spoken to her alone afterwards and she had said that she, quote, thought it was number four. And then Campo handed her the picture she had just taken of, he had just taken of Charles holding up the four sign and then basically pretended that that was the number charles had in the lineup (gasps) he mixed it up purposefully to try and confuse the victims and ultimately had them identify charles because of the 
lack of coordination and the misremembering of the numbers that they held. So that was like a total, they were targeting Charles at this point. They wanted to seal their case. That's for sure. Right. Which is fucking shameful of them because they are completely neglecting the fact that the real perpetrator of these rapes is just running around. Yep. He could be terrorizing other women. He could be breaking and entering elsewhere. He could be robbing people off the street. They genuinely do not care about protecting and serving because they have a personal vendetta against Ulysses Charles, and they are going to carry it out and back their boy in blue Mm -hmm. and make sure that this man gets punished, not for the rapes of the three women, but for that crime back in the day, years before, that they still have a vendetta against because he did not go to prison for that. And that was, at this point, almost 10 years before. And they are ruthlessly targeting Ulysses. They are going to use their tactics to put him behind bars for a brutal crime he did not commit. Absolutely. With no regard to the victims who just want justice for the attack that they had to endure. 100%. During his trial in 1984, one of the victims said that she identified Ulysses by his dreadlocks. As we discussed, the photos she was shown of him were taken prior to him having dreadlocks. So these poor women are just confused at this point. Yes, so confused. It's not their fault, even a little. They're being so manipulated. And they're being harassed, too, honestly, having to be brought down, reliving this awful crime, probably the worst moment of their lives. Yeah having to relive it over and over and over, it's not right. No. It's not right. Boston Police Department's criminalist Stanley Bogdan collected a bed sheet from the bed where two of the victims were raped, as well as a robe one of the victims was wearing at the time of her attack. From these items, police were able to find semen and determine that the attacker had type O blood. Now, let's take a pause and just... Put our heads together and think, hmm, the perpetrator of this crime, whose semen was found at the crime scene, type O blood. It's pretty straightforward. What blood type does Ulysses have, might we wonder? Is it type O? No. Huh. Type B blood. That's not O. That's a different letter. That would be enough to cancel out the whole case and send everybody home packing. I think so. Wow, that's crazy. So wouldn't it be interesting if the police department were corrupt? Mm. Uh, that I just I don't really think that's the case here, but no, wouldn't no. it be interesting if it were? Hmm. And wouldn't it be interesting if the evidence from the semen they collected mm. and the fact that it did not match Ulysses was intentionally suppressed so that police could wash their hands of this and call the case a day? Yep. Suffolk County District Attorney Charles Campo based a lot of his testimony around the fact that the stains retrieved from the bedsheets and robe were not semen. Hmm. Lying in court. Yep. He also did not disclose the fact that there had been sperm retrieved from vaginal swabs. These swabs were not preserved and the evidence was destroyed. Because the hospital kept calling the Boston Police Department saying, hey, we have the rape kits. We have vaginal swabs with semen. This would be great evidence. Do you want it? Could possibly literally find the actual rapist. So when the Boston Police Department ghosted 
Beth Israel Hospital, Beth Israel kept calling them saying, we have a certain amount of days to keep this in our lab before we destroy it. If you do not come collect this, we are going to destroy it. And finally, they said, oh, yeah, you can destroy it. Go ahead. We don't need it. So the vaginal swabs were destroyed. Therefore, they were never mentioned in court as evidence. Therefore, suppressing evidence. 100%. An analyst also falsely testified that the rapist did not ejaculate. Which is bullshit. They have three separate semen samples from the same man. Yeah. But because the semen does not match Ulysses, and that would dismiss their whole thing, Mm -hmm. they are intentionally suppressing evidence in order to pin this crime on Ulysses. And this man, Bogdan, the criminalist, he was lying through his teeth, and he was doing that kind of lying where he wasn't omitting everything, but he was keeping a lot of stuff. And so he said that he sure did examine, you know, the stains on the sheet and the robe, but they weren't, quote, seminal in origin. He said that the test he ran on them, it's called acid phosphatase. Apparently, he was like, yes, so that test can indicate semen, but it also can indicate urine or spit. And so the he just said that, basically discounting that those could possibly be semen. And then going with the whole, oh, the rapist did not ejaculate, therefore mm-hmm. could not be semen argument. On June 14th, 1984, a little over three years after he was first arrested, Ulysses was convicted for rape, robbery, entering a home with intent to commit a felony, and unlawful confinement. He was sentenced to 72 to 80 years in prison. Ridiculous. I would just like to note that he was sentenced for unlawful confinement, Hmm. and that is exactly what happened to him. Literally. Ulysses had to advocate for himself, and while he was in prison, amazingly, he was able to obtain copies of the victim's medical records. Yeah. This is when he noticed the women had rape kits done, and that the vaginal swabs they collected had sperm samples. He did not know this before. This was kept from him. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing the defense team, too, because they would have told him and that would have been, you know, it just was ridiculous. It was just so much corruption. Right. He wouldn't be behind bars if that fact had been brought into play. Right. He also found the hospital request to have the police retrieve the swabs. Hmm. He also found the police completely ignored the hospital's request, so the swabs were destroyed. Hmm. I can't imagine how that would feel. I bet, I feel like he probably would feel a few ways. One, oh my God, there's a chance that they could find a way to get me out of here. Because he knows he's innocent. He knows he didn't rape these women. Right, he knows his whereabouts on that night and he knows he is not a rapist. Right, and then probably a whole bunch of anger at how... The justice system could do that to him. Right. There is the proof right there that he's been screaming from the rooftops, I did not do this crime. Right. In 1995, Ulysses requested to have the bedsheet and robe added to testimony as evidence, but his request was denied. Great. So during this time, he found out that there was vaginal swabs. He found out that the officers deliberately ignored it and did not retrieve them, thus having them destroyed. He also found out the doctor that um, had examined the women and had done the vaginal swabs, his name was Dr. Batzofen, he found that 
the doctor had recalled that the three women said that the perpetrator had an American accent. He, like, written down official, he had said that. Why wasn't that mentioned in the trial? That's another thing that would have gotten him exonerated. Mm-hmm. Also during the trial, Officer William Kill claimed that he had, quote, lost the tape that had the extremely detailed statements from the three women that described the perpetrator and said he was, you know, medium complexion. He had, you know, he was scraggly beard and he had an American accent. But he said he lost those tapes. What he did say in testimony, so now he's on in the court, he said that he had given the tape to a certain Boston police officer whose name was Rufo, and he'd said he died on May 13th of 1981, and therefore he wasn't able to locate the tapes. Here's the funny part. Rufo wasn't dead <laughs> at all. He was still alive at the point of this. This is like in the 90s. And so Charles is like, I'm, so, I'm sorry, what? You said he was dead. How can you just? Yeah. So this, these guys were full of shit. And it just keeps coming up again and again and again. Full of shit. Honestly, it's amazing how much effort they put into pinning this crime on the wrong guy. Right. Maybe if they put half this effort into actual everyday police work, we wouldn't have as many unsolved crimes. We wouldn't have as many crimes happening, period. Hmm. We would have caught the guy that did this to those three women. Yeah. Wow, that's insane. They have all the evidence they need in front of them, and they are putting in three times the effort they need to catch the actual man that did this mm-hmm. and pinning this crime on an innocent man because they have a personal vendetta against him. Yes. And that doctor I mentioned, Dr. Batzofen, he said that the vaginal swabs would have conclusively identified the suspect. And I think that the cops knew that. And they, that's why they went through destroying it, because they had decided it was Ulysses Charles. Ridiculous. And so just mind-boggling. Imagining how those women felt when they found out that Ulysses was not the man that Mm. did that horrible crime to them. Yeah. And that the man who did do that horrible crime to them was still roaming the streets. Right. The whole time. I cannot even imagine it's awful. thinking that they had justice mm-hmm. and they were so brave and came forward and gave these beautiful descriptions and they were just awful. They it's felt awful. they were safe. Right. And they weren't. Truly. And they were cooperating with police yeah. and they, they thought that they helped put their rapist behind bars. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, it's so atrocious on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Like you said, Katie, in 1999, he was able to get those DNA tests for the sperm, which then was confirmed, unlike Stanley Bogdan testified, the criminalist, that it was indeed sperm. It They found out that it actually belonged to two different men, both of which were O secretors, and Charles was type B. This was mentioned in the appeal, and well, finally, Ulysses Charles had his convictions dismissed in May of 2001. Here's the real kicker. Well, one of the real kickers. Here's one of the real kickers. Reading this actually made me cry. I felt so... It's just despicable. Yeah. His charges were dismissed on May 17th, 2001. He was not released until August 23rd, 2002. Yeah. Over a year later. You know why? He was held in custody because they were deciding whether or not he should be deported 
based on a previous drug conviction. Ridiculous. You wrongfully convict a man, an innocent man. Yeah. Force him to serve 18 years behind bars. The psychological torment, the physical torment. Absolutely. That he had to endure behind 18 years behind bars, almost two decades. It's insane. He had to work on his own case and advocate for himself. And instead of so much as an apology, you want to deport him? Ridiculous. Probably because they knew he would sue and win. And they thought the best way to shut him up and rid themselves of the issue a second time, because they thought they rid themselves the issue of the first time. Right. Was to deport him? Ridiculous. Fucking monsters. The racism is so rampant. The corruption is so apparent. And it blows my mind with what law enforcement are able to get away with. Yeah. What if Ulysses had a developmental disability or a learning disability and he wasn't able to advocate for himself in the way that he did? Right. He'd still be in jail. What if putting him behind bars was the last straw and sent him into a mental health crisis mm-hmm. and he harmed himself and right. wasn't able to advocate? You could talk about this all day long. Right. The inhumane conditions, that is enough to break anybody down. Oh, easily. Being put in 72 to 80 years, being sentenced and accused of breaking in and ruthlessly raping three women that is enough to break anybody's character anybody's strength anybody's spirit yeah he was incredible for advocating for himself but he should never have been in the position to have to do so i 100 percent agree bullshit this makes me so mad Mm -hmm. and the fact that on our list of cases to cover we have so many exonerations that we could talk about this is already the second one we've done yeah After his release, Ulysses filed a wrongful conviction lawsuit against the city of Boston. It took them seven years. However, it ended up being settled in 2009 for $3.25 million. Which honestly, like, I wish he got more because that is, he spent 18 years in prison. In harassment. He was harassed before the rapes even happened. Right. By this John Mulligan guy. Mm -hmm. Like, come on. He deserves, ugh, I can't even deal. He also received a measly, in my opinion, $500,000 in state compensation in April of 2009. Hmm. I did out the math for the state compensation. In the 18 years he was in prison, not including the time between his arrest and sentencing, Mm -hmm. but 18 years is 6,574 days. $500,000 divided by the amount of days he was in prison wrongfully. Right. Comes out to roughly $76 a day. Huh. Which I think is an absolute slap in the face by the state to a man who was forced to endure hell mm. every single day. 100%. Bullshit. Couldn't agree I more. cannot stress that enough. I know. It's so awful. I think it really just goes to show the level of corruption and how strong back the blue really is they take that so seriously yeah we've talked about it so many times before because if you go against one of your fellow boys in blue one of your fellow police officers and you have to go out into the real world in a situation with them do you think they're going to have your back no 
Probably not. They might fucking shoot you when your back is turned. You never know. It's yeah. so crazy. Yeah. No entity should have that much power. Right. No entity should be able to get away with that. Right. If any other profession started changing up how they do their job, you're not doing your job. Like, how is that justice? How is that protecting and serving? Right. The real perpetrator of that crime is wandering the streets. Yeah. Yeah. How is that doing justice for the victims? How is that doing your job? It's, and you know, it's, you'd think that they would put the victims first and put their best interest in mind because these three women were raped brutally. And then they picked someone, they zeroed in on him and they said, this is a guy, we're going to make it so that they identify this guy and he goes to jail. Completely ignoring the fact that there is the real perpetrator out there and he could do it again and again. And they definitely didn't consider the fact that this rapist could rape again while Charles was in jail and then proving that Charles did not do it because of the Siemens, you know, whatever. Idiots. Right. And what a slap in the face to the victims. Right. How are they ever going to trust police again they shouldn't they They were manipulated yeah they were manipulated bamboozled conned Mm -hmm. into genuinely believing that ulysses was the man that did that awful thing to them and i do not blame them at all one bit because these police have expert manipulation tactics we see it every day 16 plus hour interrogations with no food or water and breaks harsh lights you break someone down you fuck with their head mm-hmm. and you get what you want and nobody should have that power. No. I couldn't agree more. It is so disturbing. So disturbing. And I highly recommend you guys go on the Innocence Project's website and look at how many people are currently behind bars for crimes they did not commit mm-hmm. and how many thousands of people they have had to set free from wrongful convictions. Yeah. And these people have PTSD, psychological, mental, physical, emotional damage from serving time. Yeah, they lost their jobs. They lost their families. And in the end, there's four victims here. Yes. Those three women and Ulysses Charles. Those women still don't have an answer to, like you said, Katie, probably the worst night of their lives. Mm -hmm. It's still unsolved and they probably don't feel safe to this day. And that's sad. And that's not fair to them. Right. And what if something happens? To, I mean, Jesus Christ, if they get rear-ended and they have to call the police. Right. If that were me, I would be hesitant. Oh, absolutely. Are you going to say the man that hit my car right. is like, do you have a personal vendetta? You want to pretend like someone else rear-ended me? Right. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's so fucked up. It is so crazy. And how many other police departments have we talked about? That pull shit like this. It's not just the Boston PD. No. Uh, all of them. Episode 76. Let's talk about the Hartford, Connecticut PD. Oh. Let's go back in the day and talk about up in Vermont, how that shit was handled. One of our first episodes. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. It's just so sad. It's pathetic. And you can't talk about true crime without talking about the corruption in law enforcement. Like absolutely. Protect and serve my ass. Absolutely. How many victims are you screwing over every single day? And how many people are behind bars for shit they didn't commit? I mean, Jesus Christ, how many people are walking around with blood on their hands? Just right. 
la 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 right. in the streets because they got away scotch free because they're white probably uh-huh yeah yep 100 percent. oh i should take my blood pressure right now i know i can tell you're like you're flushed you're like I could, feeling it uh-huh i should take my blood pressure right now and you know guys. it's moments like this and stories like this where i just want to throw it back in people's faces if they say not all police not all this some police officers well if you do look at this case look at literally every other case we've talked about because there's always an element of bad police work it happens again and again and again and again and again and it's just like school shootings throw it right back in their face 20 children dead 13 children dead like really really keep throwing it back because i mean seriously you can't argue what's clear in front of you it's ridiculous now guys we always invite polite conversations polite debates fine if you want to talk to us about this subject or this case, please do. We invite you to. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at True Crime Any. All lowercase. Or you can send an email to our email address, which would be truecrimeny at gmail.com. We also, of course, have a website, truecrimene.com. We have a handy-dandy submission tool on our contact page where you can send us questions, comments, concerns. You can let us know your thoughts on this case. Truly, this is one where we... Highly, highly, highly invite conversation. Polite conversation. Polite, nice, kind, productive conversation. We will shut it down as we have in the past if a conversation is no longer moving in a productive manner. Correct. And we will do so politely. You can be anonymous if you so choose. You can leave your name if you like. We also would love case suggestions. Any exonerations based in New England, please. Love that. Any cases, period, based in New England, please. Let us know. Send them our way. And we would love to hear from you guys. Absolutely. And don't forget, you can go on Spotify and give us a star rating. Or you can go to Apple Podcasts and give us a star rating and or written review. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.